0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. this is the Wednesday of Holy Week. I am Pastor Neil Wemus. I am a pastor in Ida Grove, St. Paul Lutheran Church. Um, this is a recording of a meditation devotional uh, for today the Wednesday of Holy Week. Um, if you are listening to the if you listen to the last two days, the last two days I did kind of a service of Vespers. Um, for this purpose. Today I'm not going to do as much. Today what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing. There's going to be a couple hymns, there's going to be a couple prayers, but the bulk of the recording is going to be a read-through and kind of a meditation upon Luke's account of the Passion. And so it is with that in mind we begin this recording uh, with the singing of the hymn When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, if you have Lutheran Service Book Hymnal,
1: this is on page 425. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, say, death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head his hands, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did such love and sorrow meet? Oh, thorns composed so rich a crown Were the whole realm of nature mine That were her tribute far too small Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all.
0: Let us pray. Merciful and everlasting God, you did not spare your only Son, but delivered him up for us all to bear our sins on the cross. Grant that our hearts may be so fixed with steadfast faith in Him that we fear not the power of sin, death, and the devil through the same Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. The Holy Gospel for this day, which is the, um, like I said, it's the Wednesday of Holy Week, is taken from Luke chapter twenty-two and twenty-three beginning at the first verse. And as I mentioned earlier, as I read through this, I'm going to provide commentary um, to kind of serve as some of, of a meditation or a devotional on this text. So we begin. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes are seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So just a little note, verse 3 talks about that Satan entered into Judas. Uh, I don't want anyone to think that Judas was a was a had no free will, that he was just demon possessed and he cannot be held responsible for anything he did. That's not quite the case. See in this is kind of something that you get in scripture that happens many times where a man, somebody in the scriptures is stuck in sin, they're stuck in rebellion against God, and there's a certain point when they're rebelling against God for long enough that God eventually just says, have it your way. Um, this is kind of what happens with, like, Pharaoh. If you read about Pharaoh in the Old Testament, in Exodus, uh, talks about God hardening his heart. Well, this actually happens after... Pharaoh had made a habit of hardening his own heart. And so Pharaoh made a habit of hardening his own heart. And eventually God just says, fine, you want to be against me? You want to be standing your ground against me? Fine. Have it your way. And so God hardened his heart. Similarly here, um, it may be that what is happening here is that Judas is one who has been so consistently in rebellion to Jesus, even though he's been walking with him, hearing him teach, seeing him perform these miracles, and in spite of all of that, he is still turned against Jesus. And so Satan entering into Judas, it's kind of like Judas was handed over to do what he was doing anyways. It's basically, it's almost like a way of saying, again, saying, fine, you want to live that way, have it your way. All right? So continuing on to verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. That little detail tells you when this happened. Um, this would be Thursday after 6 o'clock, because um, Jewish calendar uh, went from uh, f- went from 6 p.m. to 6 p.m. And so uh, it's saying that this is happening on the day the unleavened bread... Of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So this happens some point on that Friday, which Friday technically counts starts at 6 o'clock of what we would call Thursday. So I know that sounded confusing, but that's giving you the date. So 6 o'clock the night before, the at least 6 o'clock the night before the crucifixion. So probably, you know, 7, 8-ish, somewhere in there. And he will show you a large upper room furnished, furnished. prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I want to make a little note in verse 10, or 11, sorry, there's that little word guest room. That word guest room only shows up one other time in the entire gospel of Luke. And that only other time is in Luke chapter 2. It is in the Nativity story. And then the account of Jesus' birth. In Jesus' birth, he is. Um. It says that there's, in your traditional translation, so like the King James says that there's no room for him in the inn. The Greek word there is kataluma. The word in is better translated as guest room. So it's actually better translated as there is no room in the guest room. That word, "Cataluma" shows up only two times in the entire Gospel of Luke. Here and the birth of Jesus. And I'm going to get to why I believe there might be significance to that. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Um... But just kind of going back a little bit on that Luke 2 reading is the reason why we could argue that it's not in. There's no nasty old mean old innkeeper. They would not give any room for uh, Mary and Joseph. Um, the inn or guest room, every house, most houses in first century Israel um, had an upper room or a guest room where people who were visiting would stay. And so... What they're saying is that when Joseph and Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus at the time, got to Bethlehem, there was no, because there's a census, there's probably a lot of people in town that normally wouldn't have been, because of the census, there was no room in the guest room. And therefore, they were forced to stay in the place where the manger was, which is probably in the attached part of the house, which was kind of like a very it ba- was almost like a barn. Not it's, it's kind of a cross between a barn and a garage, um, to kind of give you an idea as to where they would have been at. So, but I'm going to come back to that. I think there is significance as to why Luke uses that word only twice. Um, and by the way, the word "in" that's used for hotel, um, you do find that in the Gospel of Luke in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and so. Um, we do have a word for a hotel type in, but it is not used here. Uh, so anyways, it says, And when the hour came, he reclined a table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Okay, so this is a, this is something that Luke has that is not included in the other Gospels. There are two cups. There's this cup and there's going to be another one you're going to hear from um, in a little bit. There's two different cups mentioned. So what's the deal here? Well, what there is, is there is actually two different meals. There was kind of what you call the cedar meal, and then there was um, the actual Lord's Supper. So, what is being expressed here with the first cup is the cedar meal. This is just kind of a, a cup of friendship. Um, this is a tradition that is carried on in some churches, especially in some of the uh, Greek Orthodox. They will share a bread or a, a drink of water or something like that. That's kind of a, a meal of unity, a meal of friendship, but it's not necessarily the Lord's Supper. Um, that's kind of drawing from this. Uh, verse 16, it says, I w-, It says that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This is. Um, Jesus, this is kind of the reason why we talk about this in the scriptures. When we talk about this in the divine service, we refer to the Lord's Supper as a foretaste of the feast that is to come. And where that comes from is right here. Um, Jesus saying that um, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So in other words, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is a foretaste of that coming meal that we will share with Jesus. Verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, his disciples, uh, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed! And they began to question one another, which of it, of which of them it could be, who was going to do this. So there you have in verse nineteen, uh, verse nineteen through and twenty, you have the words of the Lord's supper. Um, so it does not have as much detail as the other scriptures, of, as Matthew or Mark does, um, but you do have it right there. So it is included. It just doesn't have as much of the details as some of the other Gospels, or even the account that is recorded in 1 Corinthians. Uh, verse 24. A dispute also rose amongst them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, There you go, Jesus kind of flipping things on their head. The greatest is not the one at the table, but it's the one. In this, rare, this case, the one who is great must be a servant as well. You are those who stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, I got to go backwards. I forgot. I was going to bring this up. So, the significance of that word, cataluma, that it shows up only two times in the Gospel of Luke one is the birth of Jesus, and the other time is here. Well, at the birth of Jesus, Jesus is laid in a manger. Well, think about it. What is the purpose of a manger? The manger is a feeding trough. In there, placed in that manger, is. The body is Jesus, the baby Jesus. Well, Jesus is placed in there, but he's not in the upper room because there's no room. And I'd argue that this is a foreshadowing. It is letting you know that Jesus may not be in the upper room, but he will be eventually. Though he is right now, his body and his blood is in this manger. Later, his body and his blood will be in the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper, given to you, given to me, for the forgiveness of sins. So it is a point, I'd, I'd argue that it is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion. This is why I've heard of some churches make the tradition that on Christmas Day, they place their communion elements inside of a manger to remind you, that the one who was in the manger is also in the bread and wine given for you. Um, Or as the hymn says, there there is a hymn in Lutheran service book. It's called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. And this is what the second verse says. It says, King of kings, yet born of Mary, as of old on earth he stood, Lord of lords in human vesture, in the body and the blood, he will give to all the faithful his own self for heavenly food. See, right there in that second verse, it is being confessed that Jesus, the one who is the King of kings, who was born of Mary, is in the bread and wine, he gives himself for heavenly food. So. And I believe that that is the um, the connection between those two texts. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that is what I'm guessing. Okay, verse 31, it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have, prepared, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned against strength in your brothers, Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death, Jesus said. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow in this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that the scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors for what it is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Understand that verse 35 through 38 are not verses to go to to talk about gun control okay um i would not use verses 35 through 38 to make a statement on any theological position because it is an utterly confusing verse okay um i read that passage and i don't totally understand it um although i'd argue that maybe the sword that he's referring to is not a literal sword but he's actually referring to the word of god which is referred to as a sword but again, it's speculation at that one. It is not a text to base any teaching off of, all right? So I'm not saying I'm I'm in favor of gun control or against gun control. I'm not going to talk about that on this podcast, but because that verse gets used to def- talk for in regards to gun control debate, um, I'm telling you don't. That's abusing the Bible. It's a verse that you cannot use to really defend much of anything. All right. So verse 39. When he came out and went as was custom, was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them, from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he he prayed more earnestly. And a sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. All right, two little things in there that's of note. First is, um, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. That passage, first, the cup that he's talking about is his crucifixion, is his death. He is praying that he not be crucified. This is a reminder that Jesus does not want to be crucified. He does not want to suffer what he is about to suffer. He is willing, but he doesn't want to. Okay? And so, this is, so he is praying it. Not my will, but yours be done. This is a, a demonstration also of prayer. What prayer is and what prayer isn't. There is a popular notion that pow- prayer has power. Therefore, people tend to teach prayer like it's kind of a vending machine. You put in the prayer, it's like putting in the coin, and poof, whatever you prayed for is going to come out of the vending machine and you got what you got. And if you did not pray, if you pray and you don't get what you get, that you you prayed for, that means maybe you didn't put enough, you didn't pray right, you didn't pray hard enough, you didn't pray enough. There's something wrong with the way you prayed, something wrong with your faith. Well, the problem of that theory is verse 42. Right here, Jesus is Praying to Jesus, to the God, the Father. And Jesus has greater faith than any person ever has. Jesus can pray better than any of us can pray. Because he's Jesus. And yet, in spite of that, his prayer is answered no. Because of the, given the fact that he eventually gets crucified. So, there is an answer of no to his prayer. And so... The power is not in prayer, but power is in the one to whom we pray, which is why the prayer that we should be praying, and we prayed in the Lord's prayer, thy will be done. It's a difficult prayer, but we need to pray it. It's difficult, but necessary. And I say it's difficult, and it takes extraordinary faith, not little faith, as some have argued, but extraordinary faith. Because what you are saying, you're you're saying three things. One, That God has the power to answer your prayer. Two, that he may choose not to answer it, that choose to answer no. And three, that him saying no is what is best for the whom you pray, or for what you pray. That takes faith. Faith that God can do it, and faith. That God's answer, whether it is yes or is no, is the best answer. And by the way, if you say it lacks faith to pray like this, again, remember, Jesus prayed that way. So Jesus is laying the model to pray. When we pray, we should say, Lord, if it be in accordance with your will, give me this. Make this person feel better. Um, Help my finances. Allow me to have this vacation um allow me to get this job if it be accordance with your will that is understanding that god may not grant what you want but also understanding that if he doesn't he is doing what is best for you even if you can't see it all right the next the other part of this paragraph that is of note is verse 44 and 43 43 and 44, if you have a te- a Bible, we'll have a little footnote at the end of it. So verse 43 through 44 is a passage that is not included in the manuscripts in Luke. And so it is one of those passages, and this does happen sometimes um, within the various Gospels, where we have a passage that has been added in that was not originally in the, the, that book of the Bible. Another example, this is in at the beginning of chapter 8 of John's gospel, um, is the woman caught in adultery. This is a lengthy passage that was not originally part of the gospel of John, but very likely it did happen. Um, because the, the tradition dates pretty ancient. And so it does not seem like something somebody invented um, and just came up with for so decided to insert it just for the sake of inserting it. Um, but rather, it is something that probably really happened, got lost, and somebody decided to insert it um, into the place that it probably didn't belong. And so, verse 43 to 44 is one of those cases where it talks about Jesus sweating his sweat becoming like great drops of blood this is um something that you know it does not seem like it really does belong in the gospel of luke because luke's gospel tends to convey jesus very much as the determined um sacrifice he is very much determined that he is being going to be crucified he is not trying to fight again against it it isn't um kind of the the tragic nature uh the way it is in the gospel of mark it is um you know he is very much set on it and so including in this the drop sweating great drops of blood just doesn't really go with luke's account but it does go with the idea of the crucifixion just of how agonizing it is and it does fit into the 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 oral tradition of the church um i was when i was looking i just kind of had to look it up before i commented on this but we have records of this from uh, justin martyr um erenaeus hippolytus eusebius and many other fathers um have mention of it it is referenced in um, many of the other ancient script, um, ancient account, um, manuscripts, and so it's very likely that this did happen. It just is not recorded in the gospel, probably does not belong to Luke's gospel. And so what it is, is that um, Jesus became, was sweating like great drops of blood, which, by the way, this is actually a possibility, and it's, it's, it's medically possible. Um, I read here from the um, Lutheran Study Bible, and it says, The inner agony finds physical expression. The phrase may compare the drops of sweat with go- globules of blood. However, severe stress may, in- may cause the blood vessels of the skin to break, mixing the blood with sweat. This is called hematidrosis. And So yes, it is an edi- actually a medical condition that really happens where a person could be under such duress um, that they will actually begin to sweat. Um, blood will actually come out of their sweat sweat glands. So um, So this does kind the fact that this is of oral tradition of ancient tradition. I mean, I mean Justin Martyr's talking about Justin Martyr, is the middle of the 2nd century. I mean, you're talking pretty old. That's as old as many of the manuscripts. So it is very, very, very likely that this, um, this did happen. Um, and it shows just how stressed out Jesus was as he underwent the crucifixion. Verse 47. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed them. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders. Who had come out against him? Have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So, this morning, um, we actually did a kind of a brief walkthrough of as much of this account as I could in a Bible class. And one of the gentlemen who was there, you know, made the point of how Jesus is talking to the crowd right here. When he says, um, day after day, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. You know, Jesus is calling out their cowardice. Um, They had opportunity after opportunity to arrest him. And yet they never did anything. Why do they do it now? It's because they are afraid of the people. And Jesus is calling out their fear and their cowardice. Um, also in this text, you Judas' betrayal, which is a very dark and um, difficult betrayal to deal with because um, he betrays him with a kiss. Of all things, he betrays him with a kiss you know an international sign of love and affection is the means by which jesus is betrayed and then you have this um this guard who other scriptures identify as um hold on i got to quickly look this up um the john the gospel of john identifies this servant whose ears cut off is malchus and Pe- so peter's the one that strikes him and upon doing that jesus Gets down and he heals this man. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, not the miracle. I mean, Jesus did a lot—pretty significant miracles. I mean, I mean, there's there is the fact that he, you know, produced uh, brand new flesh, which you know that's pretty amazing. But the really the significant thing is the fact that, um, I mean, okay, you lose an ear. You are going to, you will survive if you lose an ear. Um, bear, sorry if I, my voice travels a little bit. i got to stand up here. I'm getting a little sore. My, my chair isn't the most comfortable. But anyways, if you, get, if you lose your ear, somebody cuts it off, it is going to hurt like none other. But you're not going to die very likely. But Jesus nonetheless stops and heals this guy. I mean, Jesus is incredible stress. I mean, that was highlighted just a little bit ago when we read that Jesus' stress was to such a degree that um, he was sweating drops of blood. He is so stressed out and because he's, he's about to be crucified. He is going to suffer something of excruciating pain. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. And yet, this man, he stops... And he heals his ear. Incredible. It just shows the incredible compassion of Jesus. And it shows how he is in control. He is in control of everything. No one is taking his life from him. This kind of goes with um, what the Gospel of John confesses. That, you know, Jesus says in John's Gospel that I am the good shepherd. I lay my da- my life down for the sheep. No one takes it up from me. And so this kind of is consistent with that. So we continue on to verse 54. It says, Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together... Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went and wept bitterly. So, Peter here is standing before, so Peter is asked by this woman and by this man, and by the way, when he says woman, um, in our English context, we hear that that sounds very derogatory. Uh, but in greek culture saying woman would be like saying ma'am or miss um same thing with when he says man he's it's probably like saying sir he's like hey man what's up he wasn't talking like that he's like sir i do not know what you're talking about or ma'am i do not know him so that's kind of what he was way way would sound in our culture a little bit more accurately um but here he is he's Peter is showing a lot of what he was like. Peter was the person, he was the first person to speak up on so many occasions. When Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But as in the very next verse, when Jesus says, I am going to suffer many things, I am going to die, he says, no way, Lord, this will never happen to you. See, Peter was a person, or Peter, you know, Jesus is walking on water. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out onto the water to you. And so he walked out on the water towards Jesus. But when the wind stirred up, he began to sink. Because, see, this is the theme of Peter. Peter is bold to bear witness when there is no risk, when there is no danger, when there is no cross to bear. But when there is any, even the mildest of threat, he cowers. And here, Peter is showing the absolute level of his cowardice. Because we get the detail in the other gospel, in the gospel of John, we get the detail that the apostle John is also following this trial. He's there. And everybody knows that John is a disciple of Jesus. And this kind of lets you know that the the Pharisees the high priest you know the, the teachers of the law these people they're not seeking to put to death um the disciples their their plan they're thinking is if you strike the shepherd they'll scatter and they'll scatter permanently and and actually it's true that is what happened because they did not believe that Jesus was going to rise from the dead they did scatter just as Jesus predicted and they you know the Pharisees kind of understood this. You get rid of you get rid of Jesus, he dies, he stays dead, his his followers are going to disappear, and they're probably right. But Peter here, so Peter here is not denying Jesus because he's worried about being killed, and notice he's denying himself denying Jesus first to a woman, a servant girl even, a girl who really had no authority over him, someone who. If she said that, he said this, nobody would believe her because she is a servant and a girl. And so, but more so he is, and that's a cultural thing, not saying the girls are untrustworthy, but that's how they felt in his time. But Jesus, but the fact is Peter is denying Jesus because he's probably ashamed to be associated with a prisoner. Associated with this man that's been arrested. And so he's basically covering his own behind. uh, Protecting his own reputation. It's a reputation thing, not that he's afraid that he would die. So we continue. Verse 63. And and by the way, I could not imagine how how horrible Peter must have been when he looked at Jesus and remembered. And remembered how he was the one who said, I would go to prison and death before I denied you. And here he did exactly what Jesus said he would. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, and the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is. So, Jesus gave this little statement. He says, Um, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Um, This is the moment when everybody kind of began to realize what Jesus was saying every time he called himself the Son of Man. Um, He calls himself the Son of Man a lot in the scriptures. Uh, Here, I'm going to actually pull up how many times that actually is. Okay, so the passage that is of reference to... That term, Son of Man, is taken from Daniel 7. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So this person that is being described is the Son of Man, and that person is God. That's who Jesus is claiming himself to be every time he calls himself the Son of Man. Now, initially, this may be confusing because um, Ezekiel is also referred to as the Son of Man. And Ezekiel is merely a prophet. So people might have thought, oh, he must refer him to, he's maybe calling himself a prophet. We may disagree that he's a prophet, but, you know, that's what he's calling himself. Well, when he used that, when he referenced Daniel in the trial, that's when they knew who he, he was claiming himself to be the whole time. And to give you an understanding, um, he calls himself um, the Son of Man. In the Gospel of Luke alone, he calls himself the Son of Man 25 times, at least. um, Just with a quick search. So 25 times he calls himself the Son of Man. So if anybody ever says that Jesus never claimed to be God, right there, there's at least 25 times he did. Um and by the way, in all four gospels he, um in the New Testament he calls himself, he's called the Son of man seventy six times. So it is a pretty significant term that Jesus has used and like I said, it is a reference to his divinity. Um, all right verse, chapter twenty three verse one, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urged, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently, accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this they had been at enmity with each other. So here we have this... Um, this little detail about Herod and Pilate, that at that day they became friends. Um, and this is actually something consistent with historical record. Historical record has it that Herod and Pilate were frequently at odds with one another. Um, and the reason was, is because Herod had control of Galilee, Pilate had um, control of Judea. And so, but the thing was, is that Herod wanted control of both Galilee and Judea. He wanted control of all of the region of the Jews. He wanted to be like his father, Herod the Great. And so quite often they were at rivals. So for example, and this is recorded in Luke's gospel, um, there is a circumstance, and let me see if I can pull this up here quickly. I believe it's in uh, Luke chapter 11 is where I would say it's at. I could be wrong. Um, okay, maybe it is in there. I'll, um, I'll have to look it up some other time. But basically, it's this uh, passage where Jesus asks, um, do you think that these people who... Um, whose blood Pilate spilled, they're worse sinners than you are. And to which Jesus, you know, Jesus says, no, I, but I tell you, unless you repent, you too will perish. And one of the things he references is there's a situation where there is this confrontation between Pilate and the religious leaders. And the reason was, was because Pilate set up these, um, these images in the temple, and they had a very strong rebellion against any kind of foreign images showing itself in the temple. And so Pilate was forced in this situation to either take them down or leave them up. If he takes them down, what's going to happen is that um, Herod is going to send a letter back to Caesar saying that Pilate um, is dishonoring a Caesar by taking down Caesar's images. The other choice is that he doesn't take them down, and there is a rebellion that he has to squash. And Herod is going to send send message to Caesar, declaring that Herod would um, that Herod would not 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 that Herod sending it to Caesar that Pilate was not listening to people and was causing a riot, and so and he'd get upset that way. And so no matter what Pilate did, he was going to be in trouble. And so Pilate made the decision to leave him up. And that was what happened. There was a rebellion. It got squashed. And so they had to, and a letter was sent off to to Caesar, and Pilate got in trouble. And so that is where this enmity was, you know, was um, recorded. And Caesar encouraged this. Caesar encouraged this in order to, that, you know, if they were constant, if they're competing with one another, kind of the theory is that they would do better if they felt that there's a competition. So, uh, that is. So this is kind of, one of those things that's verified in history, and it is verified in history that Herod and Pilate, towards the end of Pilate's time in Judea, did become friends. But they all cried out together, "Away with this man! And release to us Barabbas!" But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. So there you have the deal detail. Barabbas, insurrectionist, murderer, is sent away. And by the way, I don't know if you're noticing this. Jesus gets beat on a lot. I mean, if you read the scriptures. You know, if you read, um if you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, you've seen just how much of a bloody mess Jesus is by the end of it, because he does go from place to place. I mean, he is beaten by um, the soldiers of the high priest of the council, the um, the temple soldiers and guards. He's beaten by them. He's spat upon by them. He's mocked by them. Which, by the way, I didn't bring this detail up earlier. Um, That trial, by the way, was illegal. Which is why in the Passion of the Christ, uh, you see that um, they're questioning what's going on, because really there should be nothing going on. It was illegal to have any sort of trial prior to 6 6 a.m. And we know this is before 6 o'clock, based upon the detail of the crow and the 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 rooster crowing, and Peter's denial. So we know that this is all happening before sun sun up, which means it is still um, nighttime. It's not it's not legal to be doing a trial. Um, but Jesus is beaten there. He goes to Herod, and they beat him there. And here Pilate's talking. and says, "I I will therefore punish and release him." Uh, Luke's account skips over the flogging the flogging really hardly happens in this one the gospels that really get into the detail of the flogging are matthew and mark um luke and john have very kind of briefly mentioned especially luke's but it does happen they are he is flogged um with the cat of nine tails that whip with that you know it's got the sheep bone the metal balls and they whip that person they beat them pretty severely um and that did happen Uh, luke kind of just glosses over it and if you're wondering why is there you're going to notice as i go through this as i've been going through this there's a lot of differences in details between the four gospels and you'll note that none of the details really contradict each other they're just different editions and so the question so why are they all different well that's because it's that's the way things go if i if four different people were outside and they saw And those four different people saw a car accident happen you would get four different details now certain things would always be the same they're all like the color of the car is most likely going to be the same now somebody might say well it's actually um, this kind of red and the other person would just say it's red Um, but mostly the details are gonna be pretty those type of details are gonna be pretty similar but there's going to be things that might be mentioned that are different and the reason is because the person reporting them is a different person and they will notice things are different and they might be in a different position. And so there's various reasons why the Gospels all report different things. They're all trying to emphasize something and they have a style, they have a goal. In the case of Luke, his goal is to show the determined Jesus, the, the Jesus that is determined and set and ready to be crucified, um, to carry out the mission that he was sent for. And so that's why there's things that get cut out. And that's prob- that might actually be the reason why the flogging is kind of glossed over, is because this is not, um, again, this is not like Mark, which is much more the tragic nature, um, which w- really goes into the detail of the flogging. Verse 26 And as they led him away, oh, yeah, oh yeah going back to Barabbas, um, Barabbas is the one that replaces Jesus. Which this is just incredible theology. Because you have two different people in this text, by the way, that are saved. Literally. Pilate is in a situation that we know this from extra historical sources. That at this point, Pilate is on a very... Um, is very much on a short, short leash um, with Caesar. That if there is another uprising in Israel that Pilate is going to be executed. So right here, Pilate is in a situation of choosing between letting Jesus live and having himself be put to death or putting Jesus to death and him living. So Pilate, by sending Jesus to be crucified, is being saved. But there's also Barabbas. And Barabbas very much so deserves it. He's a murderer. He's an insurrectionist. And from what we know of history, he probably went right back to jail. And he probably was eventually executed anyways. And so um, Jesus was exchanged for a murderer, for somebody that deserved it. And that is, you know, that short-term situation is a reminder of what the whole crucifixion is about. Is that he is going there for sinners like you and me so as it says in verse 26 and as they led jesus away they seized one simon of serene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind jesus this was a that's a little detail to tell you how severely jesus was flogged even though um luke just glosses over it he was not normal for a crowd member to carry a cross, and because if it was nobody would ever watch it, because uh, nobody would want to carry a cross covered in another human's blood. Um, so, the fact that he had to be had to be carried just shows that Jesus was beaten pretty badly. Um, the carrying of the cross, um, he would not have carried the full cross, as you see traditionally seen in many images more likely that he would carry just the crossbeam, and that would weigh about 125 pounds and he'd wear it he'd carry it just over a half a mile um and a large portion of it would be about would be uphill so it would take a while to do it would take quite a while not so much because it was a long distance because it really wasn't if you if you walked it under perfect health perfect health You know, you could get up, you could get there in, you know, um, 10 minutes. But when you've been severely beaten and you're carrying a 125-pound beam and you're getting whipped and you're getting mocked and all that stuff, it takes quite a bit longer to get there. Um, So it says, And there there followed of him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is Jesus prophesying. First, the women that are weeping, these are not women of faith. These are just random women. Um, In the time of Jesus, there were people that were known as professional mourners. They were paid to cry for people. And that's what they were. That's who Jesus is telling them to cry. So none of your fake tears is essentially what he's saying. He's not talking to people like Mary, his mother, or you know the some of the other women that did love Jesus who were there. He's talking to the professional mourners. Don't weep for me. Um, he's he's just he's it's kind of showing Jesus was not a big fan of these professional mourners. Because there's also another point um, in the Gospels um, with the daughter of with Jairus' daughter when he raises her. Just before that, there's these same professional mourners. He kind of has an incident with them. So again, another situation here. He's telling them not to mourn. But he continues, it says, Blessed are those who never weep for yourselves and your children. And here is believed that Jesus is prophesying something that he's already prophesied earlier in the Gospel of Luke. And that is an event. There is a period where Jerusalem would be sacked by Rome. And, And during that time, a famine broke out. And the famine was so severe, it is said that women were actually eating their own children in order to survive. But the Christians, the faithful, they were up in the mountains. They were the one they were there in safety. And so this is believed that what Jesus is right here is prophesying is that event. He is talking here, not to Christians, not to his disciples. His women, the women that were disciples, and when I say disciples, I'm not talking about the twelve, I'm just talking about those who listened to his teaching and believed it to some degree. Um, he, I, He's talking, but here he is talking about non-believers. So two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast their lots to divide his garments. Um, so, this little Jesus' forgiveness again, this is a model from Jesus of how we deal with people who persecute us, is we forgive them. We forgive those who hate us. We forgive those who persecute us, especially when it's an injustice. When we suffer harm for doing the right thing, we are are not to grumble that it's happening to us. Oh, poor me, we're supposed to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, This is a reminder that they were stripped naked when they were crucified. Um, And the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Um, the wine that they're offering, and this is a detail that's included in all the gospels. This was actually the sour wine was given to soldiers to dull the pain of the crucifixion. It was to make the crucifixion easier to deal with. Um, but Jesus denies it. He refuses it. And this again, and this is actually even in the Gospel of Mark, which is, you know, the gospel that's much more playing into the tragic nature. Um, it shows the determined nature in there is that he is in control. That nobody's taken this from him. He is willingly suffering everything for you, for me. So one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence and condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 43 is a very kind of a challenging verse a little bit. Um well actually let's step backwards a tiny bit that the soldier with the criminal on the left at some point he had a change in heart because we do have the detail in the other gospels that initially he is mocking jesus just as well as the other criminal but at some point or another he becomes repentant and uh, he turns to jesus and he confesses Jesus, and this is that, this is two people who come to some type of a faith based upon witnessing Jesus on the cross, and the other one's coming a little bit later in this text, and it's quite an amazing thing that they they see this. So it is two people that we know of who were involved in this crucifixion, who were dead set, uh, set against Jesus, by the end, having seen him suffered, come to know him. And this is kind of those reminders that our Lord, our Jesus, is most clearly seen, not in his miracles in his wonders, but in his crucifixion. Which is probably the reason why Paul says, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucify. And that goes very well with that hymn that I started with. When I survey the wondrous cross. So I continue to verse 44, it says, and It was now about the sixth hour, and there's darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This darkness that is recorded here is affirmed by extra biblical witness. Um, and I say this it's recorded it's affirmed by Jewish historians, Greek historians that there was a great darkness um, that happened and specifically they mentioned that happens during the time of Passover. And so they call it an eclipse, which it wasn't. Um, solar eclipses are are scientifically impossible um, during the time of Passover, and more than that, the darkness lasted three hours. The the longest eclipse in the history of the world lasted only eight minutes. So, this is something miraculous, something that is defies human understanding. And so sixth hour, that would be noon. So it started at noon, and it went till three o'clock was the darkness. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now this is kind of one of those moments where we are reminded of why it's important to read all all four gospel accounts. Because there are details that are in other... All four Gospels have things that are not in the others. Uh, Matthew's the one that has the detail of those coming out of the graves. Um, Matthew and Mark have the detail of Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, John has the detail of it is finished. All of these... And then here you have, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There are three sentences... That Jesus says in the last moments of his life. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it is finished. Those are the three. There's debate as to how that all orders. But they all are recorded in the the four Gospels. And what I have to make note of is, is when Jesus speaks from the cross, it is so incredibly Important because nobody because I want you to understand the cause of death on the cross on in crucifixion is, is asphyxiation. they the weight of their body is crushing their lungs and they're slowly suffocating. And, and in order to breathe, what they would do, the nails, which are driven into their wrists, I know it says hands, but actually um, in Greek language. The wrist includes, uh, is it include, typically included in the hand, and so they drive drive the nails in the hand, the wrist, not the actual palm, like you sometimes see. And the reason is is because they put it in the palm, the hand would tear, so nails would be into the wrists, and they'd be into the you know just above the feet, and basically the reason what they would do is they use those nails. And they pulled themselves up, scraping their bare back, which, you know, in the case of Jesus was horribly torn, torn to shreds from the flogging, scraping it against that cross in order that he may say a word. Every, which means that every word that he spoke was of absolute importance. And so, and even more so because... Every time a person spoke, it shortened their lifespan. So when Jesus spoke, it was absolutely essential. And according to what we have in Scripture, he spoke seven times. And so this is, you know, in, in the gospel text that we have today, you know, from Luke, three times he spoke. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The other gospels, you have my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You have it is finished. You have um, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. And I'm trying to think, of, I can't think off the top of my head at the moment um, what the seventh one is that I'm missing so um the thing is with crucifixion is and i have to step, stepping back a little bit the purpose of crucifixion the way they did everything they did the goal was to humiliate the person whom they were crucifying and so on the above jesus's so jesus is stripped naked the crucifixion itself is on the hill leading in to Jerusalem, which meant if you're going into Jerusalem, you saw it. It was unavoidable. It's the first thing you saw. Um, and they had that plate above, and it said, this is the king of the Jews. That head plate was the crime. And so the whole idea, the logic behind crucifixion, the way they did it, was that when people saw it, they saw how painful, how agonizing it was. You would look upon, you would think, man, what would that person do? Well, all you would have to do is look above their head and you'd see that plate. And you'd see the crime they commit. And you would know, based upon that, not to commit whatever crime they committed. In, Jesus, in Pilate, this is included in John's Gospel, which if you go to services on Good Friday, you'll hear this. In John's Gospel, the detail is laid out. You know, Jesus Pilate says, "What I," they ask him, "says Don't say he king of the Jews." Say, but he claimed to be the king of the Jews. To which Pilate says, "What I have written, I have written." This is actually a significant detail to understand that Pilate is telling you that Jesus's crime isn't that he claimed to be the king of the Jews; his crime is that he is the king of the Jews. And that's very profound because the reason Jesus died is because he is your king. In order for him to be your king, he had to die for you. So we continue on verse 47, it says, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And the other gospel, Matthew and Mark, includes the detail where he says this man was truly the son of truly this man was the son of God. So we have this detail that a centurion, along with the thief on the cross, come to some idea and belief as to who Jesus is by observing his crucifixion. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returning home, beating their, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is is the passion of our Lord according to St. Luke. O Lord, have mercy on us. Amen. Let us pray, gracious Jesus, our Lord and our God. if this hour you bore our sins in, our, in your own body on the tree, so that we, being dead to sin, might live unto righteousness, have mercy upon us now and at the hour of our death, and grant to us your servants with all others who devoutly remember your blessed passion, a holy and peaceful life in this world and through your grace, eternal glory, and the life to come, where with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reign. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The last... So with that, we conclude with the closing hymn of the day, The closest, the closing song today, um, and this is actually the hymn of the day, one of the one of the common hymns for Good Friday, but at our church, we will not be singing it on Good Friday. Um, it's hymn four fifty, Oh, sacred head now wounded, which I know we sang yesterday, but yesterday I sang the four verse version. Today we are gonna I'm gonna sing all seven verses. And I know this is a longer recording than the first two days did. Um, but that's because, as you noticed, I walked through in detail um, the gospel of Luke's, Luke's passion. So, it is with that in mind, we continue with him 450, O Sacred Head Now Wounded.
1: O oh, Sacred Head Now Wounded with grief and shame, weighed down. now, scornfully surrounded with thorns, thine only crown. All sacred, had one glory, what bliss. to call thee mine How pale thou art with anguish with sore abuse and scorn How doth thy face now strength in this sad strife. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners gain. My mind was the transgression, but thine, the deadly pain. Lo, here I fall, my Savior, tis I deserve thy place. Look God, me with thy favor and shepherd, now receive me, my guardian know me thine. Great blessings thou didst give me, O oh, source of gifts divine. Thy lips have often fed me with words of truth and love. Thy Spirit oft hath led me to heavenly joys above. What language shall I borrow? Thank thee, dearest friend. For this thy dying sorrow I pity without end. O oh, make me thine forever. Should I fainting be, or let me never, never, I'll live my love for thee, my Saviour, be thou near me when death is at my door, then let thy presence cheer me, forsake me nevermore. When soul and body languish, O oh, leave me not alone but take away my anguish, my virtue of thine own Be thou my consolation, my shield when I must die. Remind me when my last hour draws nigh Mine eyes shall then behold thee Upon thy cross shall dwell My heart by faith enfold thee Who dieth thus dies well
0: Thank you, and I pray that this was a blessing to you. Um, tomorrow and Friday, I will do a much shorter recording. I haven't quite figured out what I'm going to do for Monday, Thursday um, because I want you guys to go to church on Monday, Thursday. Go to church on Good Friday and get, those, get as much of that as you can. So I'm going to try to find something that doesn't take away from that. So, please, please, please go to Good Friday services. Go to Monday Thursday services. Go to Easter Vigil services if it's available where you live. So, again, I am uh, Pastor Neil Wemus. I am a pastor in um, Ida Grove, Iowa, at St. Paul Lutheran Church. Uh, if you happen to live anywhere near us, you are welcome to attend our church this weekend. We have Monday Thursday services tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Good Friday, 7 o'clock. Easter Vigil will be 6 o'clock on Saturday. And then Sunday morning at 6.30 and 9 o'clock, we have Easter services. Um, I encourage you to come, um, and we'd be glad to have you. Um, so the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you His peace. Amen.